Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The new Alliance Theatre family play, Sit-In by Pearl Clegg, is streaming now. And the show was inspired by an earlier exhibition at the High Museum, Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. Later this hour, author Andrea Davis Pinckney explains how children's books help begin important dialogue about difficult topics. We'll begin with a ceremonial and celebratory subject. The inauguration of President Joseph Biden will take place on January 20th, as we've been accustomed to saying throughout most of 2020 and into this new year, it will look very different from usual. Health concerns over COVID-19 spread, as well as security concerns, have downsized crowds and moved many of the usual events to virtual platforms. But we know that music has and will play a central role on Inauguration Day. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us to share some music fit for a president. Happy New Year, Scott, and welcome back. Hey, thanks, Lois. Happy New Year to you. It is always great to spend time with you and hoping that 2021 keeps getting better and better. Uh, and you know, as fancy and technologically savvy as we think we are in 2021, there are some really magnificent old traditions that date back to the founding of our democracy that are still alive and well, especially when we hit some of these ceremonies that come in through from time to time. Music has served what we call utilitarian or functional roles in ceremonies for thousands of years. And that is certainly the case for many American military and civic customs that have been around since the start of our country. 
Music has been central to the office of the President of the United States, including the inaugural swearing-in ceremony that we're about to witness. You can expect a lot of ceremonial and patriotic and entertaining music over the course of the entire day. Music has also been an important face of White House cultural life. And we've had many musical presidents. Thomas Jefferson was an excellent violinist and he even met Mozart over in Europe. John Quincy Adams was a flautist. Harry Truman and Richard Nixon both played piano very well. And of course, Bill Clinton played saxophone. I did not know Richard Nixon was a pianist. Yes. He probably should have stuck with that. <laughs> Indeed. And we know President Obama has a wonderful voice as he broke into song on more than a few occasions. Scott, the elite military service bands in Washington, D.C., as well as the military base bands located all over the world, have highly detailed and specific musical traditions for ceremonies. That's right. In fact, there's a long history of music being used by the military to signal and move troops. And this started in our country with fifes and drums back during the Revolutionary War and uh, started really a huge brass band movement in the, the Civil War era. Today, we regularly observe the lone bugler playing taps at military funerals. We're all familiar with revelry and retreat that uh, can be heard on military bases. And of course, the national anthem is played at sporting events and other ceremonies all over the country. Bands regularly perform entrance fanfares to announce the arrival of dignitaries. So in the case of the President of the United States, you're going to hear four ruffles and flourishes. And a ruffle is played by a drum and a flourish is played by bugles. It sounds like this. For the president, that is followed by the playing of Hail to the Chief. This well-known anthem is performed immediately after the president takes the oath of office. performed by the president's own United States Marine Band. That is the official name. The first documented performance of the piece was in 1829 for President Andrew Jackson. Most presidents found Hail to the Chief to be apropos for their arrival, 
But Chester Arthur did not. That seems like chutzpah, Scott. What, <laughs> what didn't he like? Well, I'm not sure what he didn't love about it. It's, it's a great tune. Um, President Arthur, who served back in 1881 to 1885, actually went up to John Philip Sousa uh, and said, well, you know, where is this beast from? And it ends up, it's an old Scottish boating song. Yay. And he did not care for it. So he ordered that it be replaced. So Sousa found some other music to replace it for whenever President Arthur came into the room. But about a year and a half after Arthur left office, Sousa wrote this piece called The Presidential Polonaise. And this was in 1886. the Presidential Polonaise by John Philip Sousa, a pretty catchy tune, but Hail to the Chief made its way back into ceremonies after Sousa left the band in 1892. We know that it was performed at President Benjamin Harrison's inauguration in 1889, and it's pretty much stuck around ever since. <laughs> oh, a Scottish boating song is a wonderful origin for Hail to the Chief. <laughs> Apparently, there were two first ladies who received credit for having Hail to the Chief played for presidential arrivals. Yes, I love all these stories uh, that we don't always learn in history class. So there were two first ladies. One was Julia Tyler, the wife of John Tyler. She was actually a composer herself. And the Tylers were quite the socialites. And she allegedly asked the Marine Band to perform Hail to the Chief to announce her husband's arrival. Sarah Polk, wife of James Polk, had a more pressing need for the piece. Apparently, President Polk was rather vertically challenged <laughs> and unassuming, had a kind of boring personality. And it seemed to be rather common that he would arrive at functions and no one noticed. Oh no. <laughs> so she thought, well, it'd be helpful if we had a big fanfare. So Hail to the Chief definitely helped President Polk to be noticed when he came into the room. So it took a few years, but in 1954, the Department of Defense actually codified the piece as appropriate presidential honors. Interesting. That's much more recent than I would have thought. John Philip Sousa became the 17th director of the Marine Band at age 25. He was very young. He led the group from 1880 to 1892 when he branched off to start his own professional band. The only two marches Sousa composed for presidents 
were both for James Garfield. And a reminder, Garfield was the 20th president who served only six and a half months when he was assassinated. Yeah, kind of a sad story uh, for James Garfield. And, and he did not actually die uh, when he was shot. It, uh, kind of lingered for a, a, quite a while. And he ended up dying of an infection, which we think was probably caused by his doctors trying to, to get the bullet out. But uh, this march was written for his inauguration by Sousa. This is a stately and rather long march. It's about seven minutes. Most of them clock in around three. So this is President Garfield's inauguration march played by the Marine Band with Sousa conducting. And that was at the inauguration ceremonies in Sousa also composed a memorial piece after Garfield's death called In Memoriam. In addition to his 136 marches, Sousa composed a number of other pieces, often for White House occasions. And one of the enduring traditions since 1878 has been the annual Easter Monday egg roll on the South Lawn. In 1911, Sousa wrote a really charming piece called Easter Monday on the White House Lawn in a suite called Tales of a Traveler. John Philip Sousa's Easter Monday on the White House lawn. Not technically a march, even though it sounds like one, it's a novelty piece. Still, it is a delightful piece of music and I think the most intense slapstick part in all of the repertoire. <laughs> well, for an egg roll, what do you expect? <laughs> Not to be confused with um, an appetizer in a Chinese restaurant, That's by right. the way. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes here with Dr. Scott Stewart. We'll be back after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're here with Dr. Scott Stewart, who is taking us on a journey through presidential music in honor of Inauguration Day tomorrow. Colonel Michael J. Colburn led the president's own United States Marine Band in music of Dmitry Shostakovich, the festive overture, a wonderful showcase for the virtuosity and musical finesse of this fine organization. The president's own has the unique mission of performing specifically for the President of the United States. And as a result, it's reached a level of prominence as well as artistic excellence, which is on par with the nation's finest symphony orchestras. Scott, I follow the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library on Twitter and There was a lovely tweet recently. The tweet showed a photo of the president and Mrs. Carter dancing and said it was taken at a formal dinner at the White House honoring labor leaders and featuring the Broadway musical actor John Raitt along with the U.S. Marine Corps orchestra. Is that part of the same organization as the President's Own Marine Band? Yes, it is. The The President's Own United States Marine Band has a large membership. In fact, it has double bands so that in the fall when they go on tour, there's another full group left in Washington to perform. And they have a number of offshoots, which include harpists, jazz ensembles, uh, the Bushes had a country western band, um, there's an orchestra for, for chamber music and for, for smaller you know, state dinners and all kinds of functions. So yes, it's kind of its own uh, corporate structure of a whole bunch of different musicians, but they do include string players in the quote unquote band. Yeah, well, I also thought this was remarkable because this was tweeted on January 13th and That would have been 40 years ago. It would have been right before the Carters were leaving office. And how beautiful to have music and a celebration honoring labor leaders on what had to be a very sad evening for them. 
Yeah. I think we forget how often, and we may, we just may not know how much goes on in Washington, but the Marine Band, as you mentioned, is a remarkable group of some of the best musicians in the world. Amazing players. They log over 500 concerts and ceremonies in a year. So think about the frequency that you would be playing if you were in this organization. Uh, the band has played at every U.S. inauguration since Thomas Jefferson's back in 1801. And while today there are many musicians from the armed services performing as a part of inauguration, only the president's own participates in the swearing-in ceremony itself, the parade, they don't often march, but this is one time that they do, and then the ball that's in the evening. So if you watch inauguration, you'll see the president's own United States Marine Band seated directly beneath the inauguration platform where the swearing in ceremony occurs. It makes for a really long and often very cold day. <laughs> <laughs> Gives new meaning to warming up those instruments. That's exactly right. Music of Leonard Bernstein, the fanfare for the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. We heard members of the president's own United States Marine Band, Colonel Jason Fedick, conducting. Leonard Bernstein, who at this point in the 60s was an international superstar, had met JFK back in the 1950s. And when Kennedy was elected, he appeared regularly at the White House. For the inauguration gala, which by the way was produced by Frank Sinatra, Bernstein was asked to write the opening fanfare. Following President Kennedy's assassination in 1963, there was an outpouring of artistic responses from around the world, including a memorable performance of Mahler's Resurrection Symphony with Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic. There was a lot of artistic response to President Kennedy's assassination. And in the wind band world, we have a piece called Elegy for a Young American by Ronald Lopresti. This was written in 1964 and dedicated to JFK's memory. It's really a slow adagio for wind ensemble and it's become a part of the standard repertoire for high school, college, and professional wind bands. It's a very somber piece, but beautiful in expressing pain and grief and loss. Interestingly, composed about five years before the so-called stages of grief were codified.
Scott, in presidential history, it's likely that no individual is more respected and admired for his leadership and personal integrity than President Abraham Lincoln. Aaron Copeland's A Lincoln Portrait from the year 1942 stands among the most iconic of Lincoln memorials. It's a piece for symphony orchestra and narrator using text from Lincoln's own writings and speeches. A Lincoln portrait has logged thousands of performances. It's been translated into nearly 20 languages and has been narrated by such luminaries as Neil Armstrong, Margaret Thatcher, Barack Obama, and even the composer himself. This is an amazing piece. It's 13 minutes long and divided into three sections. There's this opening part that's about Lincoln's gentle spirit. And there's a little bit of an allusion, I think, to the tragedy that would uh, come later. There's a very spirited middle section which evokes the times and spaces of Lincoln's life out in the country with square dances and fiddle tunes. And then this third section, which is about seven minutes into the piece, when the narration begins. This piece brings in those musical elements which we immediately associate with Aaron Copeland. These very simple harmonies that are in little triads, some really pungent and um, cringy dissonances, super energetic rhythms, and really great orchestral writing that ranges from hearing just a little solo flute playing by itself to these huge gigantic sweeps of the entire orchestra. So in this version of A Lincoln Portrait by Aaron Copeland, we hear the Seattle Symphony with conductor Gerard Schwartz and narration by James Earl Jones. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. That is what he said. That is what Abraham Lincoln said. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. Lincoln portrait by Aaron Copeland not only captures a snapshot of Abe Lincoln, but also in true Copeland fashion, the magnificence and the beauty of the United States. Indeed it does. 
And what a magnificent reading by James Earl Jones. You had me at James Earl Jones. <laughs> it doesn't bother me that Darth Vader is actually reading <laughs> speeches by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, think Hamlet and some of right, his right. other great roles. <laughs> there are countless political drama and comedy movies, Scott, both biographical and fictional which center around American presidents. And one popular movie from 1995 is titled just that, The American President. It was produced by Rob Reiner and written by no less than Aaron Sorkin of the West Wing fame. Michael Douglas stars as the widowed president and Annette Bening as his love interest. Martin Sheen, who'd later play the president on the West Wing, plays the White House chief of staff. I suppose he was auditioning there for Aaron Sorkin. The American President is a terrific dramedy love story with a wonderful cast and some really smart writing. The soundtrack was composed by Mark Shaman, who was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Score that year. Il Postino ended up winning. That was music by Luis Bakalov. But Mark Shaman is as successful on Broadway as he is in Hollywood. And he wrote a super dramatic and soaring score for this film. Music by Mark Shaman from The American President. There are certainly shades of Aaron Copeland Americana in this music, which seems perfectly appropriate. This is a heartwarming score for a really sweet story. The charming film Dave was released back in 1993, starring Kevin Kline from Indiana University, Go Hoosiers, and Sigourney Weaver, not a Hoosier. Dave, who has a side job impersonating the president, is brought to Washington temporarily when the actual president suffers a stroke. He proves to be much more popular than the actual president, including with the first lady. This is such a great movie. And I think that, you know, if I were a composer and I was uh, given a project that was kind of a, I guess, a gentle comedy like this, uh, I think this would be one of the hardest 
projects to take on, especially since it involves the presidency and the idea of having some much more higher stakes implications. So the composer that was brought in for this score was James Newton Howard, one of my absolute favorites out in Hollywood now. And he navigates this challenge brilliantly. The soundtrack for Dave is breezy and good natured, just like Dave, but it can turn quickly to draw us deeply into a really meaningful emotional backdrop of the show. Music from Dave by James Newton Howard. We often think of Fantastic Beasts or Hunger Games when you think of James Newton Howard, but this is some really clever and emotionally perfect writing for this film. Amazing energy, great orchestration, and I love all those orchestra bells and celeste cues that we hear in there. Mm. And a wonderful music that fits Kevin Klein's role. He is such a brilliant comic actor, reminded of his performance in A Fish Called Wanda and In and Out. And it's, it's worth checking out that film. No less than Steven Spielberg directed and produced Lincoln in 2012. Daniel Day-Lewis received the Oscar for Best Actor, portraying Abraham Lincoln in the last months of his presidency as he worked to pass the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and the Civil War. The film was a critical and financial success. Lincoln is the 26th collaboration between Steven Spielberg and composer John Williams. The score is lush and it's dominated by a string orchestra and it combines a kind of restrained patriotism with this really deep emotional core. There's also some referencing of the country and some fiddle music and some Civil War marching tunes as well. And in a somewhat unusual move, a non-Hollywood orchestra was assembled to record this soundtrack. And in this case, the magnificent Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And the sixth track on the album is called With Malice Toward None. This is a stately and elegant tune with a very reverential tone and is maybe more reminiscent of Williams' score for War Horse and Saving Private Ryan and the Patriots. 
The entire score is John Williams' The Master. It's elegant and stately, and it's able to find and amplify the emotional heart of the drama. And there's actually a version for trumpet that John Williams composed specifically for Chris Martin, former principal trumpet of the Atlanta Symphony, now principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. Hmm. The West Wing goes down as the premier political television drama of our time, running from 1999 to 2006 on NBC. It was created by Aaron Sorkin and starred a legendary ensemble cast, including Martin Sheen as the president. And the main title for The West Wing was composed by W.G. Snuffy Walden, and he received an Emmy and several BMI awards for composing this theme. Music from The West Wing by Snuffy Walden. This music captures the grandeur and the gravity of the American presidency. It was initially written as an execute in season three, and the producer said, that's it. <laughs> and so it's become a very iconic theme. West Wing has remained so popular that in 2018, the film music label Verez Saraband released a two-CD compilation collection of music from the series. That's 18 years after the series was over. That is fantastic. I have to tell you, whenever that theme came on, I sort of sat up straighter. It, it really was worthy of a Copeland fanfare and brought goosebumps. It's a beautiful, beautiful tune, and I think it has crept into cultural consciousness. So as we approach Inauguration Day, a very special event in the life of our democracy, we remember that music is a key player throughout the entire day. And we're certainly grateful to all of our armed services musicians for their hard work on this grueling day and mindful of a beautiful legacy of music that surrounds the American presidency. Scott, we are very grateful to you for showing us the important role of music and musicians surrounding this most important day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lois. My pleasure. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Explaining history to young children is not easy when that history is filled with struggle and violence. 
Last August, the High Museum had an exhibition, Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. When I spoke with the award-winning author Andrea Davis Pinckney about the show, she explained how children's books help begin important dialogue. The children's picture book is perhaps the best vehicle for sparking conversations with parents, young people, about complicated issues. And as the world unfolds, as we see young people becoming activists themselves, as we look at history, as it relates to civil rights, we came together and we thought, what a remarkable way to present these topics to children and families in a museum setting. It's the first exhibition of its kind. There has never been a show that features the work of children's book illustrators, illuminating specifically the history and path of civil rights. And it seems just like the the right time and the right moment and the perfect vehicle. Andrea, what is it about children's books that allow the reader to comprehend difficult topics in a less disturbing way? Well, Lois, think about the children's books that perhaps you grew up with, or I grew up with, or we all grew up with. I have fond memories of my own parents reading to me and talking about what we were reading. The beauty of a picture book is just that, the pictures. So when a child is experiencing a picture book, it's not just the words, it's the visuals. And usually in most picture books, those illustrations are telling their own stories. So if a kid never reads the words, they can look at those pictures and experience an emotional reaction or attachment to what is happening. And again, with civil rights, how beautiful is that? I can sit with a child, we can look at the pictures, and we can have the visual story of civil rights in a way that you don't get in other vehicles and other kinds of books. No. Oh, I wish these books had been around when I was growing up. When you were asking me about the books my parents read to me, nothing with the depth and meaning that your books provide. I'm thinking about Boycott Blues, how Rosa Parks inspired a nation, which you wrote and your husband, Brian Pinckney, illustrated. And in addition to loving that you cast the story in the form of a blues song and that the narrator is this great hound dog who is singing the blues, you do not shy away from the scariness of what was at the core of her heroic gesture. The image that Brian Pinckney draws for Jim Crow is literally a crow, and it's a menacing, whirling presence on the page that's scary. And I think it's just such a marvelous point for discussing what it was that 
Rosa Parks achieved. But I was hoping you would also talk about how you cast the narrative. Because in addition to evoking the blues, you also have what feels like the language of some church elders with "Uh uh-huh and child. Would you talk about that? Yes. Well, Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation is a collaboration between myself and my husband, uh, illustrator Brian Pinkney. We had a lot of fun working on that book, and it's for the reasons that you described, Lois. We made a decision very early that we wanted to invite young readers on a journey, on the journey of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And the best way to do that would be to provide them with language that has musicality, is accessible, is in some respects fun. Because when they come on that journey and they're with us and they are experiencing the blues through the the guitar of of that hound dog and walking those steps, then we can usher them into some of the more complex realities of what that boycott meant. Sit in. How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is another book that you collaborated on with your husband. Would you talk about how you approached telling what is essentially a violent story in a way that children can grasp and yet not turn away from? Yes, Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is the story of the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina, Woolworth sit-in. Four college students go into a Woolworth lunch counter. They refuse service because they're African-American. And so the book begins with a big, bold quote by Martin Luther King Jr. We must meet hate with love. We must meet hate with love. So when you open the book, you see that bold statement in big letters. And then in the spirit of inviting readers in so that they can sit at that lunch counter with the characters in the book, with the four students, um, you know, there's the narrative refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. Those kids didn't budge. They didn't move. Until they were served, they refused. All they wanted was some food, a donut with coffee and cream on the side. And I know that when I share that book with kids who have read it again and again and read it with a parent or a caregiver, you know, they come back to me with that refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. So again, it's the musicality that brings them into the narrative and allows them to uh, experience some of the complexities of, of what happened on that day in 1960. Yeah, but you don't shy away from the terrifying aspect of what those four friends and others faced with coffee being poured down their backs and ketchup on their heads. And you have read this in public settings, I'm sure, as well as to young children close to you. 
What do they say? What has been the reaction when you get to that part of the story? Well, Lois, you're right. We tell the stories of civil rights and we really tell the stories of civil rights. So there are the unpleasant aspects that young people, my, my husband, Brian, the illustrator, and I really feel that we can't shy away from young people really need to know about that. So yes, in the book, Sit In, we talk about the scalding hot water poured on their heads, the ketchup on the shirts, the mustard, the spitting in the face, the pepper in the eyes. And when I talk to school children about that, I walk them through what happened. And I say, I want you to listen for a moment. If you left school today, you go with your friends, you're sitting down in a, in a restaurant and you glance over and you notice there are four people who are not being served and you're eating what would you do? And I say to them, don't raise your hand, don't call out. Just sit with that question for a moment. Well, of course, all the kids raise their hands and call (laughs) out, you know, oh, I would do this, I would do that. And I say, let's just sit quietly for a moment and, and think about, I'm eating and there are four people over there who are not being served and they're not eating. I then invite them to raise their hands and they all, you know, it's such a testament to the, the hope of young people. They say, I would give them my food. I would, I would talk to the manager. I would talk to the waitress. I would walk out and, uh, you know, I challenge them a bit. I say, oh, come on. You would really go talk to a grown up. You know, what if your friends don't like you anymore? And then I flip it and I say, now you go into the lunch counter. You're hungry. You didn't have breakfast or lunch. Your stomach's growling. You're kind of not in a great mood because you're feeling so, you know, your tummy's so rumbly. And you sit there. Nobody brings you a menu. People are ignoring you. And all of a sudden, somebody pours scalding hot water down the back of your neck. They put ketchup and mustard. They squirt it all over that beautiful shirt. And they spit in your face. And they take the pepper shaker. And they throw that pepper in your eyes. What would you do then? And the the hands don't go up so quickly. They do think about it. And they give me honest answers. You know, fourth graders tell me, I would fight back. I wouldn't allow that. There are fourth graders who say, I would sit there. And I challenge them. I say, oh, come on. You're going to sit there and let somebody pour scalding hot water on your head. And people say, yes, I would, because I don't want to start a violent protest. So these are things young people are talking about, thinking about, and through the art form of the picture book, experiencing. The award-winning author Andrea Davis Pinkney discussing her children's book, Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down. The book inspired the new family play, The Alliance Theater by Pearl Clegg, Sit-In, which is streaming online through February 28th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S, R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. 
Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.